You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. It is my pleasure today on behalf of Kathleen Birrell at La Trobe and Sanjay Bahuja uh, at the University of Melbourne to welcome us all back to the second exciting instalment in our task series, task standing for the Academic Skills Circle, uh, a series on editing. Um, my name is Ben Golder. I'm at the University of New South Wales. That is on the lands of the Bedigal people. And I want to pay my respects to their elders and to acknowledge their ongoing sovereignty of the land from which I'm speaking to you uh, on. It is my special pleasure to welcome Rebecca Crozer today to come and talk to us. She's going to talk to us uh, shortly on the topic of um, editing one's own work. Uh, Rebecca is a PhD candidate in creative writing at the Faculty of Arts and a research officer at Melbourne Law School. So she straddles both arts and law. She's taught undergraduate creative writing and has supervised honours and master's students thesis. She also edits books and journal articles for academics whose first language is not English. So there is nobody better to come and talk to us today than Rebecca, who I'll pass to in a moment, on this topic of editing. So just a reminder, we the format that we will adopt uh, is the one that we've been adopting since time immemorial. Rebecca's going to kickstart us with a discussion on, uh, on this theme, and then we'll move into a more kind of collaborative, open-ended discussion. So without further ado, Rebecca, I'll pass to you. Lovely. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to thank Sandia, Ben and Kathleen for inviting me to talk about revising your own work. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm speaking today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people and pay my respects to their elders past and present. So I know many of you in my role as a research officer, managing graduate research candidate here at Melbourne Law School. And it's lovely to be invited to chat with you in another capacity. <laughs> it's really great. So thank you, Sandy, for that. Um, just as a note of warning, there is some of my fiction and scholarly work out in the ether, but if you do go Googling, keep in mind that it's pretty juvie writing, okay? <laughs> I haven't had anything published or performed in a while and I'm keeping my powder dry, as they say. So <laughs> with that out of the way, um, so for me, and I'd say this is the case for most of us involved in the discipline of creative writing, editing and writing are the same thing. Writing is revision and revision is writing. A US writer and academic Matt Bell has just released an excellent book on revising fiction called Refuse to be Done. And for any of you, oh no, you can't see it with my blur. Um, for any of you out there who also write creatively, this is, it's an absolutely magnificent book. Anyway, it's something he recently wrote on Twitter has stuck with me. He said, it's so hard to explain to people who have never really revised how limited they're making themselves by being only as talented as their first drafts. And that's what I'd like to offer today, to just suggest some simple ways that revising and editing can help make your work better. And hopefully in our discussion after, you'll have some tips that you can share with me as well. Okay, so first off, draft zero. 
Writing fiction has its own difficulties, of course, but starting a short story or flash fiction is really a problem for me. I start and finish these kinds of pieces all the time and I always seem to have ideas for this kind of writing, but I find it really difficult to commence a scholarly piece of work. (laughs) I can see some nodding heads there. I imagine it's the same for many of you. I love it once I'm in the middle of a chapter and I've worked out what I want to say. Um, But getting to that point is really hard. So thankfully, I was introduced to the idea of draft zero, otherwise known as the shitty first draft. And it changed the way I write and revise. So the concept of draft zero is that you write with the understanding that it just doesn't count. It doesn't matter at all what you put on the page. It's a wonderful freedom when you allow yourself to just plonk your thoughts on the page, knowing that you'll be cleaning the mess up later. And I love the kind of revision that comes after a shitty first draft. I find it really pleasurable to sift through this messy writing, cherry picking the good bits out, and then I cut and paste them into a completely new document, and this becomes the first draft. Honestly, it's just a wonderful way to work, and it's so low pressure. Working in this way, you also begin to understand how revision forms a standard part of writing, and it's not a separate task. It's also good to surprise yourself with how often your first idea is also not your best one. Because <laughs> we hold on to our ideas so tight. We've got an idea, we have one. No. <laughs> okay, the next tip is paragraph three. Every editor will look for where the story really starts. And this is just as true for scholarly writing as it is for fiction. In a first draft, as in the draft after draft zero, you'll often find that everything before paragraph three is just throat clearing or scene setting, and it can be cut. It's basically you telling yourself what you want to write about. By paragraph three, you've got that out of your system and you've actually started to write something interesting. Those first paragraphs are usually torturous to write and they feel so precious because they took ages to craft. But trust me, the reader can feel that tension. (laughs) Any supervisors out there nodding? Yes. (laughs) I notice this a lot in my own work and in my students' work. The first two paragraphs can be really convoluted, dull and rigid. And then I'll look at paragraph three and all of a sudden the engine has started running. Something interesting is happening. So if you're feeling a bit stuck, look to paragraph three and see if that can be your entry point piff the throat clearing and get to the good stuff straight away. The next point is get to the good stuff number two. Something I've learned to do, and this took me ages, is to bring in the text under discussion as soon as possible. If you don't, you risk losing your reader. Now, as we all know, people read the abstract, the introduction and the conclusion of an article, and then they decide if the rest of it is worth their time. I'd spend a long time trying to convince the reader that I had the authority to interpret the text rather than actually doing the interpreting of the text. So now instead of writing four or five pages of preamble, I'll bring in a scene from the novel I'm writing about and argue an important point straight off on the first page. You have to get the reader in the first page. The preamble isn't lost, it's repurposed and interspersed throughout the article or chapter, but it's entwined and it's enmeshed rather than having these sort of separate disparate chunks. 
tics and affectations. We love these in academies and we all have them. These habitual words or phrases that we think make us sound really clever and so we overuse them. <laughs> Work out what yours are. I'd be very interested to know what they are in the discussion afterwards and try to limit them. Um, a great example is a thesis I once read which had replete with every five or six pages. <laughs> and I got to the point where I was waiting for it to arrive each time. So others that I try to curb, um, and this is, a, this is a big one, and people have very um, warm or non-warm feelings about this one, the way in which. This is a particular academic affectation. Consider using plain old how instead. An example I just ripped from the web. Within this narrative, there is no space for negotiating or even acknowledging the ways in which poverty, racism and sexism affect the lives of young mothers. So why not? Within this narrative, there is no space for negotiating or even acknowledging how racism and sexism affect the lives of young mothers. It's just, it's wordy for, for no good reason. Uh, liminal. Everyone's poking fun at liminal these days. <laughs> Same with lacuna. Um, imbricate is another one. People love to use imbricate. Um, think of some that you come across in law as a discipline that you'd like to piff. I'd be really interested to know what they are. Okay, word choices. A creative writing tenet is that every word must earn its place. This is just as true for scholarly writing as it is for creative. So I'm about to read out some sentences here and I just want you to pick what's wrong with them. Ruby ducked out the back door and squeezed in next to James on the back of the ute. She turned back to her mother and waved goodbye. How many backs? <laughs> Three. Now, they're perfectly normal ways of using back, but you, you, you really can only have one. And so you have to think about how you could rid this scene of those extraneous uh, words or, or what you could replace them with. And you'll find this out when you read things out to yourself. And that's a, a point that I'm going to go into um, just in a, a minute or so. Another thing about words, and this is particularly for scholarly writing, is to be creative with your reporting verbs. So vary the way that you cite sources. This can also subtly show what you think about these sources without having to like <laughs> really reveal what you think. So instead of using the standards such as he notes or she states or she argues, which, which you can still use, just don't only use those ones. Um, you can try out other options like infers, admits, emphasizes, um, applauds, discovers, doubts, interprets, identifies. There's so many. And um, a book that I was going to recommend, and Sunday, perhaps you might like to put these up um, in a moment. Um, a really great book to help with this kind of academic writing is called How to Fix Your Academic Writing Trouble. 
<laughs> it's brilliant. It was published in 2019 and it's written by three Australian academics. Some of you may know the thesis whisperer, Inga Mewburn. She was one of the, yeah, there it is. It's the one on the left. So um, this is a brilliant book and I use it a lot. Um, it also has great sections on shaping the lit review, um, structural edits and finding the right scholarly tone. Um, another book uh, is Writing Your Journal Article in 12 Weeks by Wendy Belcher. And this second edition was published a few years ago, I think. It was also 2019. Um, it's a book I turn to again and again, particularly when I feel stuck or uncertain about where to take or to develop a piece of work because her chapters on crafting and arguments and presenting evidence are brilliant. And the third one I was going to recommend was The Sense of Style by Stephen Pinker. Um, which is worth reading if you'd really like to go deeper into sentence craft. And for some of you, that's really appealing. For some of you, it's not. So sentences. Um, I'd really like you to think about the pattern and rhythms you're creating with your sentences. One of the quickest ways you can sharpen your writing is to vary your sentence length. And I'm not going to go into... Um, depth on sentence construction here, but if every sentence in your work is constructed in the same way, your work becomes metronomic, like a metronome. So it's like, and you can predict what the next sentence is going to be like, because you've just read five that are exactly the same. This predictability, this predictability really puts your reader to sleep. Um, and gradually, <laughs> Can see you laughing, Sandia. Graduate researchers often think that long sentences with a stream of subclauses will wow their supervisors. You spend ages crafting these flashy long sentences that you hope will make you look like you know what you're talking about. But crisp, short sentences achieve this more readily and are often far more enticing for the reader. There's sophistication in simplicity. So there are three main sentence types. You've got simple, which is your subject verb object. You've got compound, which is a series that uses linking words like but and and. And then you've got complex sentences, which have hierarchies within the sentence. Use a range of those and really think about how you're applying your knowledge of that sentence craft to impress your reader and to invite your reader into it as well. Your writing looks more professional and it's far more readable if you mix it up and use different kinds of sentences within a paragraph. <laughs> Your supervisors will thank you, seriously. Um, print it out. When you have a chapter or article you've been working on for a while, there are several things you can do to look at it with fresh eyes. Some of you may know these tricks already, but these are the ones that I love. Change the margins so that the words appear um, you know, differently on the page, you're not reading exactly the same thing. Change the font. So if you usually use one with a serif, like Times New Roman, go to Calibri or Arial, um, print it out and then read it out loud. And you'll find so many twinkly little errors and unnecessary words, and it just sharpens your writing. So it takes longer than just pressing the button and sending it to your supervisor, but it, it's really worth it. Ah, voice. Your voice changes over the course of your thesis or your book. And it's really important to go back to the first chapters you wrote and to rewrite them. And you have to be ruthless with this. 
And so many people I know ditch their first chapter. Um, and I ended up with about two paragraphs from the first chapter I wrote. And that's all I kept. And almost at the end here, I got some editing recommendations from supervisors. So I did a bit of a spot quiz. <laughs> and these were the things they wanted the graduate researchers in the audience to know. Proofread your work before submitting it. Your supervisor will be in a better frame of mind if they're reading for substance and content rather than correcting basic errors. And this goes the same as if you're submitting to a journal or you know, you've got anything out there in the, in the scholarly world. Page numbers drives them crazy if there aren't page numbers. And providing feedback, it makes it difficult to refer back to something if there aren't page numbers. Apostrophes, learn how to use the apostrophe of possession. Um, referencing, if you know one uh, reference needs to be inserted, but you don't have the exact reference at the time, use a footnote to let your supervisor know that this is the case. And it also serves as a reminder for you for when you're revising. This one was interesting and I hadn't thought about it. Ask your supervisor what their font preference is. Mm. <laughs> and submit work in that. Some like a Times New Roman with a serif and others prefer Calibri or um, Garamond, whatever it is. It's always good to put your supervisor in a good frame of mind when they're reading your work. And repetition, uh, clearly group ideas to avoid needless repetition. So to conclude, there's a couple of things that I wanna share with you. And one, um, it's a couple of quotes from Ta-Nehisi Coates's article in the Atlantic. Um, this was from the 7th of March, 2015. And the title is The Quick Note on Getting Better at Difficult Things. He writes on his attempts to learn French over the previous three years. I'm getting better at stumbling. And it is not the study of language that is hard so much as the feeling that your present level is who you are and who you will always be. It's rare for work to be made worse by revision. Revising is critical to getting better and for producing quality work. And one of the things I was taught in creative writing is that there is a fundamental difference between work that is written for a writer, sorry, work that is written by a writer for the writer as in it's, it's solipsistic and self-serving and work that is written for a reader. Be courteous and generous to your reader and you're far more likely to find an audience. So my question to you all is, what courtesies do you appreciate as a reader and do you replicate these in your own writing? Thank you. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, we're clapping in real time and through. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, that's such a beautiful way to end and a fantastic question for us all to kind of sit with for a while. Um, I'm In a moment, I'm going to open us up to questions, as I'm sure we've got, and some responses to the excellent talk that you've just given us. So everybody um, keep thinking of those questions. But I'm going to pass straight away to Sandhya. Um, who has got some kind of initial questions, Rebecca, to, to get you going. Sun. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Beck. Um, Rebecca, uh, that was really nice. I've written down your 10, 
10 points um, and I plan to use them actively. Um, so I think uh, a couple of questions I had for you or just your reflections on is when people are writing a PhD in particular, they're often learning for the first time how to really craft scholarly writing. I think often people haven't really been pushed to pay as much attention to their scholarly writing as they have to do once they hit PhD land. And I was wondering whether you have any suggestions for how people can improve their grammar while they're also doing a PhD. So I um, often talk to Hilary Charlesworth about this, who co-supervises quite a few people with me, and she's a real grammar fiend. And <laughs> I often use a, um, a website called Grammar Girl. But yes. just just um, that, and actually Grammar Girl has a good podcast as well. And But just that uh, question of how do you keep improving your grammar while you're doing this three to four year journey um, or four to five year journey or six to seven <laughs> no not six to seven year journey no. but while you're it is doing if you're part time journey, it's definitely that yeah, long. Yeah. yeah so how do you how do you improve your writing while you're doing the research and then the second question I wanted to ask you is um, whether you have uh, whether these things that you're talking about, the 10 steps, do you do them all the time or do you wait until you get to a certain stage in a draft? Um, and I say this out of self-interest as a supervisor as well because, of course, I'm much better at giving advice than I am at taking my own advice. Of course. But, you, but when you kind of are sending someone else ongoing unfinished drafts how do you bring this writing as revising idea into that process for me it's continuous like there is no difference um it, it's very different if you're working with someone collaboratively and i think in in that sense um you really need to display a kindness in any feedback you're giving and that is often to phrase things as a question rather than um, <laughs> rather than asserting that this is how it is. But in, in terms of, uh, so this is the second part of the question, and do I do it all the time? Yes, I do. But that's because the things are completely enmeshed for me. Um, in my own work, yes. But if I'm collaborating with someone, no, it's different um, because there are very specific times where you will write generatively and you're not as um, strict with each other on, on things having to be in a certain format. But then there is the time, of course, when you move into, like, say, draft three or four, where things start to get really focused and finicky. And the first part of the question, improving your grammar, that's a tough one, Sandia, because I think you actually have to want to improve your grammar. I, I don't think it comes <laughs> naturally to a lot of people. I think you have to make a really big effort in order to do it. And I do too. There are still things that, um, that I learn all the time about grammar. Um, 
so uh, some of those books that I recommended have wonderful, um, particularly the How to Fix Your Academic Writing Trouble. It's such a, a great book and it's written for such a specific audience and it does have a lot of advice on grammar. But, yeah, I think you have to go looking for it somewhere. Yeah, and I think you have to be the kind of person who wants it because you can correct someone's work again and again and again and they'll still make the same mistakes and it's not until they've worked out that this is something they need to know that it will that it will end. Kathleen, thanks, Rebecca. Uh, Kathleen, I'll go to you next. Hello. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks, that was uh, tremendously um, helpful and um, I, I was smiling um, in one of your points where you mentioned the paragraph three um, because yeah. that definitely that definitely resonates with me and it um, is a question that I was I was going to ask you about specifically <laughs> that I thought about before the session um, but just on that um, I have another question but before I get to that just on that um, I know some people have tried to approach this problem by actively beginning their writing, not at the beginning, but in the middle and saying... In Medeus well, Res, will... yes. Yep. Sorry? Uh, isn't it called in Medeus Res? Yep. And in... I find that extremely difficult <laughs> to begin in the middle um, and then go back at the end and write my introduction, even if yep. that's what I end up doing by default, of course, because it, you know the introduction requires revision, as you have described. Yep. So I wondered if you had ideas on that methodology. Um, but also I had a question about uh, the question of clarity and um, wondering whether you think that in right you were talking about um, academic affectation in writing and so forth and wondering if you think that in writing um, simplicity is always the key to clarity because I wonder whether sometimes it might be the case that precise communication of the kind that we're attempting often in academia requires some complexity it does. and I wonder if there are ways to communicate complexity with precision without introducing um, dense or impenetrable language and structure. Yep. Um, the first question on the methodology of, of starting in the middle. Um, write as you would usually write. And it, it's after that that you can try to extract. Wait, I'm sorry, there's a garbage truck going on outside. and I'm just going to have to close the window. Can you just give me a tip? Just talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> just while Rebecca goes and disposes um, of the garbage truck or at least just closes the window, I can see I've got a question queued from Carly. Um, if anybody else wants to ask a question of Rebecca, please do put your virtual hand up or chuck your name in the chat and I will go to you. Rebecca, yep. you disposed of the garbage truck. I did. I closed the window. Easy. So in terms of, of starting in the middle or trying to generate that kind of writing, another way that you can do it, and this is very, this is something I recommend to students who are writing fiction and it may work for you. When they're getting stuck on something or they're talking to me about something that they haven't written yet, I ask them, why haven't you written that yet? Oh, because I have to write, you know, these three, four pages first. I have to put them in the scene first. And, and I said, no, just, just write that actual scene. Write that thing that you're thinking about, that thing 
that preoccupies you when you're in the shower or when you're driving. Just write that thing. You don't have to know how you got there. You don't have to know what's happening afterwards. But it is amazing how many times writing that thing that you're thinking about or that preoccupies you allows you to move around the outside of it and find out how you're going to move in and around it. Or it can actually be the start of something. But it doesn't have to be. If you prefer writing the way that you were talking about, write like that. Just know that you might not be able to engage your reader immediately, but you have to offer them something else. And, and sometimes that can be style because the style that you write in or the tone that you use can also be welcoming. It doesn't always have to be uh, content. It can... When you have your own style, the reader will often trust that because they think that if you're giving them, oh, hang on, I'm going to find there was something that I had in Sense of Style, this book by Stephen Pinker. He says it much better than me. Ah, that's it. Style earns trust. If readers can see that a writer cares about consistency and accuracy in her prose, they will be reassured that the writer cares about those virtues in conduct they cannot see as easily. Here's how one technology executive explains why he rejects job applications filled with errors of grammar and punctuation. If it takes someone more than 20 years to notice how to properly use it, then that's not a learning curve I'm comfortable with. <laughs> It's beautiful, isn't it? But if you generate that kind of trust in the reader straight away, you're fine. Yep. And your other question was, um, oh, yes, that idea of simplicity and whether that's the only, um, whether that's the key to clarity. And no, um, that's not what I was recommending. I was recommending using a, um, different kinds of sentences. And so moving between those kinds of sentences rather than just continuous long sentences with, you know, hierarchical clauses, because often an idea is so large it can't be contained in just one small sentence, particularly in academic writing. So I would say use lots of different kinds of sentences, just don't use only the same kind all the time. Fantastic advice. And just on the, um, I'm going to go to Carly, who's next up with a question, Rebecca, but just before I do, I'll just piggyback on that, on that last point, just on the question of kind of starting in the middle. Um, I'm off, I often find myself kind of giving that advice to students, to colleagues, to myself, I never actually pay attention to it. But I'm also one of these people that kind of gets stuck on an introduction, or the, the kind of introductory paragraphs, the throat clearing stuff, which you know, sometimes when I obsess over it, it can end up going uh, for, you know, a thousand words and it, and it can really cause great structural problems. Um, you know, I often find myself giving the advice to students, which is we, you, you don't really write a thesis from beginning to end. You always, That's right. in, in my experience, <laughs> students will start with a substantive chapter, or case study or something that they're interested in, the thing that is kind of they find that they want to bite off and have a go at and yeah. it's only really that right at the end that they go back and write the introduction I find they might have done a really um 
cheap and dirty draft of that to get them going. It might be some kind of previous iteration of a thesis proposal. But in terms of actually a, a piece of writing, the introduction always gets written last. And so I often find myself giving that advice to students, which is, well, if, if you're writing something shorter, like an article or a journal, you know, the introductory bit to that, the first couple of paragraphs, that can come last too. Just jump into the middle and, and, and write the thing that you're interested in. Yeah. Um, I give that advice to myself and yet I frequently don't pay attention to it. Um, Carly, uh, I will go to you now. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Rebecca, for a um, really helpful and interesting presentation. Um, I think the question I have goes to you, but might also extend to the supervisors in the room, which is, is it ever appropriate to share a draft zero with your supervisors? For instance, if you're very stuck or, oh, or something. I don't want it. <laughs> um I talked about this with one supervisor and he did say that it's very difficult to give feedback on that kind of work because he's thinking so much about the errors and the the repetition and these kind of drafts do have a lot of repetition in it. I think if you were to give that kind of draft zero to someone, you'd have to know what kind of a response you'd be getting back. And, and I, I think ask yourself as well, would you want to read something like this? Maybe you would. And maybe your supervisor would be happy to receive that, but I don't know many who would. Can I just jump in quickly with a reflection <clears throat> on supervisors? Sandra and Kathleen might know um, what I'm about to say. We all studied under the same uh, supervisor um, who on occasion could be quite pernickety about the types of writing that he was prepared to read. Um, and then unless um, they probably both had this visited upon them, unless the chapter kind of, you know, properly situated itself in regards to the thesis as a whole, um, he would often refuse to read any further. So not just a kind of chapter zero, but unless it was properly scaffolded and said, this is what it's doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I had at least one example I can think of where I'd sent off a chapter and I'd assumed that he was reading it, um, uh, but he didn't. He refused to read it because it didn't do, it didn't set everything out neatly at the beginning. Um, and there was a kind of lost month or a couple of months where I thought I was waiting on feedback. Um, but in fact, he thought I'd just sent him this for fun uh, and not to read at all because it didn't do what he thought a chapter should do. So I think to come back to your point, Rebecca, I think it really, it's a question of relationship and supervisorial style. But one thing I would kind of piggyback on, and while I'm doing that, Again, I'll encourage people, please do make as much use of Rebecca um, as you can. Put your hand up or put your name in the chat and I'll go to you next. I often find, okay, Joe, I can, that's great. I'll go to you in a minute. Um, I often find from, so from my perspective as a supervisor, I often say to students, I'm, you know, I'm happy to, I'm happy for you to send me a draft zero or a, or a crappy draft or, or whatever name you gave it uh, before Rebecca, especially if a student, I, I see or I can diagnose as yeah, a pro problem. perfectionism and has got a bit of writing block. I'm happy to kind of ungun that by getting them to give me the work. The problem is, well, it's not so much a problem, but for me as a supervisor, that leads to a, a different form of feedback on that work. Yes. I often find the more porous it is, the more inchoate, the more, you know, undressed, I'm thinking of different metaphors, there are gaps in that writing. And I can, I'll, I'll insert stuff into the gaps so I can be quite imaginative and say, oh, you'll take it off in this direction or that direction um, because you're kind of projecting onto, onto an absence. 
which could be helpful, could be generative, but for the student, it could be actually quite confusing. Um, and it could be could perhaps be interpreted as like, oh, you have to take it in that direction or that's what you meant. So I think, yeah. again, it comes back to your point, Rebecca, that it's important to kind of set up those expectations um, with your with your supervisor. Again, I, can, you know. Can oh, I jump Sunday, in there? Sorry, in? I know, yeah. Joe, that you've got a question, but I just want to say something about Carly's question, yeah. which is, um, so, yes, I've also fallen victim to the <laughs> to the supervisor who wasn't reading the draft because it was not good enough. Um, but I suppose, Carly, what I would say is sometimes when we know someone is struggling, yes. we will say, send something rough, anything, anything. Yeah. And if you are frank with your supervisor and your supervisor is uh, generous enough to read very incoherent bits of writing, then that's great. The thing that you wouldn't want to do is send the draft zero as though that were a normal draft. Yeah. So you would you would want to have a conversation first and say, I'm feeling stuck and I need to generate a conversation and I want to send you some writing. And the supervisor might say, okay, send me 500 words because the worst thing is a very long draft zero. And so a short, oh, perfect, a, Sunday, yes, yeah. yeah so a short, yeah. yeah. So a short piece of getting unstuck type writing can be really useful, um, in part because it's more helpful to the person just to do it. Uh, but you wouldn't want to send, you know, four thousand words of draft zero and expect someone to have to wade through it. Can I just Sorry. add to that? Um, I really like the five hundred word pithy unsticking method <laughs> because I think that it's much better to do that than to enter into maybe a lengthy uh, email dialogue with your supervisor yes. which involves a lot of to and fro and in, in the end yeah, really what you're trying to get to is that 500 word schematic account of what the heart of your question is and so I think having a conversation and then Getting something down on paper, even if brief, is better than having those long email um, correspondences. In cases like that, I'll often use prompts, which we can use, you know, quite readily in creative writing. And I don't know if that's something that you would use in law, but I find them very effective for when someone's stuck. And it would generate the similar kind of writing you're talking about, Sandia. So I had a question from Joe and then Robbie. So Joe, do you want to unmic and ask your question? Or Mike can ask your question. <laughs> thanks, Ben. Um, Rebecca, that was amazing. Thank oh, thanks, you so Jen. much. Um, I I don't do a lot of creative writing, but I would like to, and I just I love that whole world of you know playfully thinking about how to approach things. Um, I, I, I'm just going to be completely selfish and say I get told that I polish my writing too much. Um, and I, you know, my stuff sounds nice, but um, I, I think what I'm doing is making it sound so nice that I've actually taken out or not even put in the stuff that explains what I'm trying to do. Um, and I'm struggling to see that. So I know, you know, having some distance helps um, printing stuff out and reading off the page I have to do. Um, but I'm just wondering if you have any other tips for kind of seeing what you've actually put down versus seeing what you've put down 
read through what's sitting in your brain because I'm, yeah, that's where I'm struggling at the moment. Thank you. Do you have um, a peer group with whom you can share your writing? Yeah, yeah. And that's... yeah. Sometimes that can be more stressful, but sometimes it can be less. <laughs> and um, I'd only recommend that if you think that it's going to be less stressful than, than more. Um, I, I regularly read friends' work and they read mine and it's amazing what comes up and the things that you don't see. And because they're not your supervisor and you don't, that you don't have that, <laughs> that very... <laughs> strange supervisory relationship with someone um, if you've got someone you know who can give you good feedback talk about it with them that that's genuinely my own um, method in this case um, otherwise I'd just sit on it and stay stuck for months um, <laughs> um, let me think about other things I might have done to get through that um, I start on something else that is close to it, but not exact. And like, let's say there's a theorist I'm working with and um, I work with Mikhail Bakhtin's work on chronotopes and I get very bogged down in Bakhtin. And so I might <laughs> move over to someone who's close by, someone in narratology or narrative theory and whose work I've read. And then I might perhaps write to that theorist and uh, think about how the work um, enmeshes with that rather than just relying on the one thing um, that I've worked on for months. It, it's just um, that change of perspective I find can really help. Close to, but not exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. That's fantastic. Okay, that's a great question, Joe. I had a question from Robbie, who I'll go to next, and then to Danish. Robbie, do you want to thanks, ask a question? Thanks, Bennett, and thanks, um, and thanks Rebecca. Thank um, you. I just want to reflect and perhaps ask you about, um, so I, my version of draft zero is a fridge magnet that I have, which says, um, write drunk, edit sober. Yes. And I extend that at the other end of the process as well. And so I just want to ask what you thought about that. So when I'm trying to read something with fresh eyes, I sort of go back to the beginning and almost go to that drunk stage. So I'll get up at 5am, I won't have coffee and I'll reread something as a way of giving myself fresh eyes. Yeah. Um, is this an oddity? Do, do you have any reflections on, no, it's, on it's, such? It sounds great. It's not necessarily something I'm willing to do myself, but if it works for you, Robbie, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's just the, it's the coming at something without, yeah, I look, what I like to do is allow something to simmer. And by that, I mean, I allow it. I, I don't even look at it for several months. Um, this is not always something you can do um, because, you know, we usually have to produce work um, quite quickly and for specific reasons. But when you can, whenever you can, put something away and don't look at it. That's my other, other option for looking at something with new eyes. Thanks. <laughs> That's great, Rebecca. Thank you. Danish. Um, I'm just responding to something that Sandhya put in the chat box on prompts for scholarly writing. So this is less of a prompt and more of, I think it's like the writing equivalent of taking a cold shower. 
Um, you should talk to Robbie. <laughs> so it's so it's called the most dangerous writing um, app. And the thing that it does is you set a timer um, and it can be for as low as three minutes and you start writing. And if you pause for even a few seconds, um, everything you've written gets deleted. (laughs) Yeah, so you just have to, so when you're really stuck, I find this has really helped me. So you have to get to the end of the time. And then even if it's, and you will, I think just end up writing something that's kind of helpful or relevant uh, and then it lets you copy and do whatever you want. But yeah, if you, if you stop for even five seconds, you lose everything. It's great. What if yeah, someone comes to the door and you have to answer the door? What do you do? <laughs> you lose all your good writing. It's terrible. Can I ask people a question? That sounds amazing, Danish. Sometimes yeah, I, when I can't start, when I'm procrastinating about writing something and I invest all of my anxiety in the beginning, in starting, I sometimes start with something like once upon a time so that I just get my word, my fingers to be on the keyboard and type the words and then after that something just comes. So it's a bit like a low-stress version of your dangerous writing app. But I'd love to hear what you have to say, Rebecca, and others about the first sentence. Mm-hmm which comes much later, like down the polishing, the polishing yeah, it's, path. It's never the first sentence, you're right. No, of course. But how, so I'm really fond of a good first sentence. I think it's <laughs> crucial. So, you don't, it, it's one of the things in creative writing, especially where you really, really have to have an amazing first sentence because that's what people read in the bookstore. And it, you have to hook your reader, you have to capture it. I remember reading in one, um, recommendation about writing first sentences and I have to get it exactly right um, I I wanted to strangle mother but I'd have to touch her to do it <laughs> that's from fiction obviously not law but it, it's <laughs> that works yeah. for a thesis too I mean sure <laughs> if we want to do criminal law but it's um yeah these take ages but they're so special and they're so important and I heartily recommend looking for them and trying to craft them as much as you can I I don't have any particular tips on finding them it's more about being alert to them um, in your writing and and going through going like actually going through stuff that you've you've piffed as well because sometimes they lurk Mm. in there Mm. so I keep a document with all my cuts in it yeah and because it's that idea of you know having to kill your darlings so Mm. I do but I put them in another document and sometimes Mm. I I go back to them and and I find you know really special sentences in there that's true that's a great you go son I was was just going to say that one of the other ways that I have gotten over the anxiety of cutting things that I spent time doing is to save a new draft every day with the day's date on it so at the end of the day the next morning I'll wake up and save as with the date and so then I'll have thousands and thousands of drafts but it means that if I do by chance throw away this grain of genius that was in an early draft I'll be able to find it and also have a outtakes document um 
But I guess what you were just saying also makes me think we should have another session with you on reading for craft or reading for writing <laughs> so that we learn better how to read to help it help us make our own writing better. Oh, Sorry, Ben, you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to say I've got lots of great tips from listening to Rebecca talk today, but I think that one about having a, I mean, I do that as well, having a folder or a file on offcuts um, I have found remarkably useful um, in freeing me to edit while I'm writing, especially, I mean, because I find, um, you know, I find myself very attached to particular formations. I mean, there's no affectation uh, in my writing. Readers have routinely observed that it's refreshingly clear of affectation. And yet sometimes I have to kill my darlings and I find that quite difficult. Um, And so having a folder where I don't quite kill them uh, they go to Coventry, they sit there for a while, but they can be resuscitated and, and used yep. in another piece of writing. They can live again. Um, actually makes that otherwise quite effectively challenging work of editing in the yes. piece that you're working on really, really a lot um, uh, more easy to accomplish. One thing I wanted to ask you, Rebecca, I think, again, I've got so much from listening to you today, uh, <laughs> but talking about the kind of writing and editing as being, you know, writing is editing and editing is writing. These are not kind of opposed um, states of mind or being. And yet often when we, when we um, even when you were talking about it before, um, you slipped into a way of expressing it that did assume some difference or different orientation towards the two tasks. So if you're in the mode of draft zero or um, yes. I've seen this described in another writing manuals, kind of trap writing, you just get it out. Um, whether because it has to come out or you're trying to beat the clock on Danish's horrifying um, app, it just comes out. And then the editing, and you were suggesting, I thought it was really beautiful that the kind of editing was a form of, um, I wrote it down, you were kind of, there was a pleasure in sifting. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, It's it's a lovely feeling. I think that's really lovely. And I just wondered if I could get you to, Mm. to reflect a little bit more on what the pleasures of editing are and editing specifically your own work. Um, and do you have to get yourself in a different um, state of mind to do it? Yes. Or do you adopt particular practices? So, for example, if I'm editing my own work, there's an editing that goes on sometimes too much where I'm polishing or burnishing as I go and I've got multiple, I've got multiple files open on the computer, but then I would see editing proper as something I do once I print it out and I go and sit in a cafe and I've got a red pen. It has to be red. I don't know why. Um, and that gets that's that has the effect of kind of getting me into the frame of mind where I can be a lot more yeah. um, rigorous in my editing. I just wonder if you... There are two different mindsets, definitely. There is that generative mindset and then there is that reflective mindset for me. And so often I'll move between them when I'm when I'm writing, but I do do what you're speaking about, Ben, and I there is a point at which I feel like a text, I'm sorry, something that I've made is is getting towards being fixed and it's at that point where I'll really print it off and I'll, for me it's a pencil <laughs> and I'll take it somewhere else and I and I am in a different mindset then it's moving um, towards the finish line so it I think it's more technical too and I'm also thinking much more about the reader when I'm doing that, I'm thinking, I'm imagining myself as a new person reading my work. And it's usually after that simmer period. And yeah, there's also something lovely about it and that you find out that you can write. 
<laughs> and you often don't think that at the beginning. You think, oh, my God, it's, I can't do this. It's so hard. And then you, you finally have something and you realise that, oh, I'm actually not too bad at this. That's nice. <laughs> That's one of the pleasures as well. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I would to... agree with you, Ben, about the uh, the red pen and the different location. I, yeah. Even if it's just a different part of the house, um, I have to do that. But often I find that in that process, um, much more easily than on the screen, I move entire chunks of material around the piece yeah. and restructure completely. Um, and it was only when I printed it out that I could actually see that that was required. So um, that's interesting. Does anybody else take a pair of scissors to their draft and yeah. chop up the pages? And <laughs> I draw scissors and, and say, <laughs> move to page three. <laughs> That's cute. It's that same feeling for me as I, I imagine there are some painters amongst you, but it's the same feeling. You're working up close, right, for a long period of time on the painting and then you step back and it's that same sensation and it's that same method. We are almost at two o'clock, but I want to give everybody a chance to ask a final question they would like. You can put your hand up or you can chuck it into the chat. Well, if, if not, um, we might just close and say our thanks to Rebecca. I think it's been absolutely refreshing. I'm seeing Joe is saying in the chat that, We've given her energy for the next writing session, which is fantastic. Um, you've encouraged me to get off this uh, Zoom call and and jump into writing something, not at the beginning, uh, very much in the middle. Um, I'm still too scared to contemplate using Ashdrafts or Danish's um, apps. I mean, frankly, oh gosh, I think they're too. absolutely horrifying, but it's, it's great to know that they're out there for people who are genuinely um, stuck. Uh, but I think the thing that I have got, uh, Rebecca, from listening to you talk both about scholarly writing but perhaps predominantly about creative practice is that it really presses us to think about the craft and the writerliness oriented towards a reader. And so we want our text to be readerly in that sense, but the, the writerliness of what we do, and I think there is a real pleasure in slowing down and thinking about that and thinking on, on that micro level about our sentences um, and you know how they how they relate to each other. I, it's a real gift. So it's fantastic to have you come along and talk to us all today. Um, and so on behalf of all of us, thanks for doing that. Um, and we look forward to seeing everybody at our next advertised session on Zoom, uh, which will be chaired by Kathleen. And that will be on the topic, still on the topic of editing, but it will be on the topic of editing a journal. Um, and we'll be welcoming Marco Wan to come and talk to us about his editorship of the journal law and literature so thanks Rebecca um, thank you everybody we'll see you next time you've been listening to the Illa podcast to find out more go to soundcloud.com forward slash Illa podcast that's double I L A H podcast <laughs>